What if every day you had the chance to experience more love and intimacy in your life? We're going to be sharing stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. Enjoy this podcast with Dawn Richard. Wake up to real love. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast show. I'm Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn, and we are here to share stories and struggles of triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I am super honored today to welcome my guest, Mick Smith. Hi, Mick. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I just talked to his co-host, his podcast co-host, uh, Kendra Beck yesterday. And Mick is an, is another amazing man who has this really crazy story of parental alienation. Um, and we're going to talk all about his journey and how he overcame, uh, how he got through his own struggles. Um, but Mick is a recovering, <laughs> he's a recovering academic in his own terms. He's a music aficionado. He is a, a voice talent, obviously, when you listen to him speak. Um, he's a coach. He's an author. He's really a renaissance man. So welcome, Mick. I'm so happy that you're here with me. Well, thanks for the opportunity. appreciate the talking to you. And yes, uh, Kendra is awesome. She is my co-host of The Aftermath. So we have a, a great time there and try to help people. Yeah. So I was a guest on their, I was a guest on their podcast and it was really, really wonderful meeting them. And they're doing such important work because I did not realize how much parental alienation effect impacted so many people. So I'm super grateful that you're doing this work. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about your, um, your music, your music. You were just telling me before we started that you love the fifties through the seventies. <laughs> and what drew you to that as a, as a kid? Well, they're listening I can, to pop and, you know, whatever yeah, else. I can tell you, like the first song that I ever heard that really struck me, it was Ray Charles. And oh. when I heard hit the road, Jack. I thought, Oh my gosh, what is that? So that really turned me on to music and really started cluing me in on it. And I realized how everybody, I was in a great era. I mean, 1950s to 1970s is great era. A lot of things great in the country, in the world. I just think it was an ideal time for music. So, I mean, from Motown to the Beatles, to soul music, to rock, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. I mean, there's just like, just one rich after vignette after another with all the great stuff that was going on. And so I really enjoyed it and got into it. So I was one of those people who would take open the album cover because back in the day they had albums and you open it up <laughs> the gatefold and you would see who was playing what and who was on somebody else's album and who uh -huh. did the solo and things like that. So I became kind of a trivia expert on that and people would ask me questions. And then I was really fortunate. It kind of got me through college, to be honest with you. I was in broadcasting and radio broadcasting in radio and my interest in music kept me taking classes and kept me interested. And so the things I wasn't really interested in, I'd take the classes to get back into the broadcasting studio and learn about uh -huh. music and what have you. So eventually became a historian. I liked looking at things and researching and finding out who did what. And so that's how you became a professor? Well, I think the, what, the, that's odd because my parents didn't have any background in it. And I got called down to the advisor the one day and he said, 
do you know as an associate's degree? He said, do you know you have enough credits to graduate as an associate degree? I said, well, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I don't know credits. I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, there's two things you can do. You can either say music or you can go history because you have enough credits in both. I was always interested in history. And it seemed like, well, I'm not a musician and I wasn't going to go into broadcasting. In fact, they told me, if you want to go into broadcasting, here I am in Southern California. I'm 19 or so years old. And they say, well, go back to Kansas and Oklahoma or somewhere like that. And then work what? your way back to Southern California. We oh, had to get into it, the mar- smaller oh market. So I'm going, hey, I'm, I'm 19 or so. I'm in Southern California. I said, have you seen the girls at the beach? I mean, you see that? I mean, I'm going to leave that to go Versus to Oklahoma. In Kansas. It's like, no, that's not happening. <laughs> so when I said history is probably a more applicable degree or you can do uh-huh. a number of things with us. Okay. Well, make me a history major. And I really then started getting more serious about academic work as well, too. Then I did be- eventually become a professor. That was the goal. So I did another degree and another degree. It's kept going at it. And how did you, um, how did you decide to study religion? Well, again, I think it had something to do with probably the era that I was growing up in. I mean, the 60s, when I saw everything was going on and, you know, God bless my parents are the greatest in the universe. But I think there were a lot of things that they didn't understand because we had the JFK assassination. We had Martin Luther King assassination. We had the riots in Chicago. We had Mm -hmm. riots, demonstrations, civil rights, Vietnam War. It was very difficult not to get away from history. And speaking of music, I mean, of course, the musicians were talking about this all the time because when you had listened to Bob Dylan's Mm -hmm. lyrics, I mean, the time is changing, you know, things are coming, you know, you're trying to figure it out. So it seemed to me that history and things that had been around for a very long time, such as religion, might provide some guidance and some help to get through a very difficult era. And I think that's probably, again, why I would and be interested in something like religion because it had been around for a long time. So I thought, well, in an unstable time, where is stability to be found? And what mm. are really the essential components of civilization and how have people gotten along and what's gone wrong? So, I mean, I think it all sort of rolled together. It was part of that era. Uh-huh. And so do you feel like, well, this is, this is my perspective anyways, I feel like a lot of chaos and stuff is because people move away from uh, that spiritual connection, religion or otherwise. Well, if it was, uh, if I could say a little bit about philosophy, this is what Nietzsche, the philosopher, was actually saying at the end of the 19th century. So he's famous for this statement of saying God is dead, but it's not Mm -hmm. like he was just simply talking about atheism. What he's saying was, of course, everything in civilization is breaking apart. and We have killed God. That was his point. So he was trying to find an alternative because he saw, I think, what would happen if you take societies and civilizations and divorce them from God and the eternal. If people lose their spirituality, what are you left with? And I think the 20th century and the 21st century, indeed, we have broken away from a higher power or God, supreme being, and look at the result. Are we happier? Probably not. Is there more chaos? I would say there is. And I think that's what he was trying to say. So we're losing that spirituality. You're looking for something to replace it, but probably Mm -hmm. nothing can replace it. We've got to keep that in mind that we are spiritual beings and not just material beings and not just consumers. Yeah, that's uh, because I feel like um, the majority of people 
who, hold on just a second. Um, I feel like the majority of people, uh, well, do you, do you know the Wayne Dyer book? There's a spiritual yeah. solution to every mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. And, um, because I always feel like there's a higher perspective, you know, verse, as opposed to when you're in the midst of your darkness, uh, you know, and you ask why, why, why? Like, I'm sure you asked many times when you went through what you went through. Um, and then on the other side, it's like, what's on the other side of that darkness? And I, I think, uh, talk about uh, history of religions, Mercy Iliad is one of the most famous historian of religions of all time. And he said, modern man and secular man has divorced himself, but you can see echoes and hints. And if you scratch the surface, much of the phenomenon that we see, people are searching. So look at movies, right? People really get into movies and Star Wars and things like that. Well, come on. You have battles of good and evil there, obviously, right? Right. right. If you look, look at Westerns, Westerns is always a morality tale, good and evil. So I think we, through popular culture, you know, I was talking about music. This is the search. It's something within us as human beings that we are looking for substitutes but you can see it. It's kind of concealed and kind of hidden. But in movies and popular culture, you see a lot of that striving for spirituality and the ability to try to survive in life and deal with all the problems that come on with loving and in life and trying to deal with them and figure them out yourself. And then I and and I just keep thinking about the Beatles song. All you need is love. All you need is love. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say here's the experiment, right? Woodstock was that great experience. Three days of peace, love and happiness, right? Well, in some ways, yes, but in some <laughs> ways, no, it, it doesn't really work. It was okay for three days. There are some issues, but I mean, if you're trying to live your entire life and I mean, there's all kinds of music like this. I'm saying the musicians were struggling. Uh, give him credit for at least asking the questions. Uh-huh. John Lennon, when he writes, imagine, you know, imagine the world with no religion too, no borders, no this, no nothing like, well, you know, there's a problem with that. It, it doesn't really sustain a society. It doesn't really sustain a culture. And you do need more than love. It's not love is unimportant. Sure it is, but you need some sort of structure. You need some sort of stability. And I think that's what people are looking for. Well, I, I feel like, I feel like love also has to do with peace and harmony. I, you know, I think that those were the, um, those were the tenets of how can we all learn to get along? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sustain it. Right. So you can have it, uh, for the Woodstock for three days, but what do you do after a week? And what do you do after a while? I mean, there's got to be something else that brings that stability and longevity and, the interest in religion is like, this is what religions are very concerned about. So when people say, well, the religions may be intrusive when it comes to a relationship with people, but, you know, they don't like divorce and for good reason, because it becomes very difficult for children and for the persons involved. And then you've got to heal from the breakup. I mean, so what they're trying to do is to have that stability and provide mm-hmm. guidance for people. So, yes, I think it's important to have some be recognized that spiritual component of humanity that we do have and recognize that and the attempt to try to have that longer term stability and the longer term uh, peace and ability of, let's say, children to understand what their place is in the in the world, because if the parents can't figure it out, you don't expect the child to, and the child's going to be 
set astray by some of the problems that the parents right. are passing on to them. But figure it out, people. <clears throat> say about kids, they don't have to be born, right? So you got to get your act together and <laughs> make sure that you do everything that you can and put them uh-huh. first. That's where you, you start learning things like, you know, to sacrifice and humility because the kids are completely dependent on you. Right. Well, and all the, all the things that you were talking about the world, you know, how uh, the stra- strategies to, to help the world, I just kept thinking, yeah, and these are great strategies in marriage too. And why don't people know, know them <laughs> or learn them or, or create them, co-create them? And figure out your partner, like what your partner needs and have good communication. You know, there's things that people say, you know, express gratitude every day. And yeah, say that to your partner. You know, don't take him for granted, you know, because they could be gone someday. Or if you don't show your gratefulness and the things that they do and express that and communicate openly what your needs are and what they need are and, you know, the trigger words that set them off and understand their past and, the things that they have dealt with before and be careful and conscious of that. I mean, it's part of having a better and an intimate relationship. And if you can figure those things out, then you're more likely to have a rewarding and healthy relationship. So why don't we talk about the breakdown of your relationship? Yeah, well, it's pretty dramatic. So in some ways, when uh, I was the primary caregiver for our daughter, which is very small, we had an unusual situation in a lot of ways. So I had an academic position that started in January of 1994. Our daughter was born in May of 1993. Mm -hmm. So since July, we had moved to Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia area. My wife worked two jobs. She worked double shifts. So guess who had the baby? So from July of 93 until January of 94, I was alone with her. So I took care of her. You know, I fed her, put her to bed, got her up, changed her, did all that. And there was an unusual time for probably most men and most fathers. They don't have the opportunity to take care of a small child. But my my wife's pattern was I would come home from work and sometimes she would be running off or go somewhere and she would be somewhere else. So I thought, well, that's kind of her pattern. I knew that. However, when our daughter was five years old, I pulled up in the driveway one day and I said, well, this is totally different because everything was gone. And when I say everything, I mean everything. The furniture was gone. The house was stripped. The curtains were gone. I called the banks to see what happened to the money. All the money was gone. Had in my pocket. I had literally $5.85 in my pocket. That's what I had. So, Oh, my gosh. All of that was okay, as devastating as it might be. But I also walked in the door, and I found a note that my wife was going to said she's going to go away for a while. However, she tucked that note in a book about the John Bonet Ramsey child murder. So if you remember that famous case, it was oh a small gosh. child who was murdered. So I thought well, that's kind of an interesting placement of that note. And the whole idea was the stuff I can replace, the money I can get back somehow. Where is the kid? Where's so my daughter? She, where's my daughter? So five years old at that time, called the school, which she picked up. Yes, a neighbor had picked them up. I called that neighbor. They weren't there. So then I said, well, what am I going to do? I have no idea where she is. And I started just driving around the town, some of the places that my wife had gone to and some of her friends. Nope, none of them had seen her. But I knew that she had been, my daughter had been at the one neighbor's. I flagged down a cop at that time. And I said, well, I had tried these neighbors where I, I knew she was earlier. Why don't you try? Guy calls on the radio. So I literally found out where our daughter was. I'm living in Pennsylvania over the police radio because... 
came over the ra- the radio, California. So my daughter what? is three thousand miles away. Yes, indeed. So that's how I found that. Taking her on an airplane by. She was gone. Yep. And I had no idea, but I found out over the radio, she was in California. So I said, I got a problem here. I got to get that kid back. And I stayed in the the marital home. I was there the whole time. You know, I'm the guy that didn't fool around, didn't take drugs, not an alcoholic. I mean, no abuse. I mean, nothing. I'm like, wow, what happened here? It's so the story in the novel is burning America. I wrote it in, in a novel form, but most of the things that are in there said, I couldn't have made them up. So I'm a fairly creative individual, but I couldn't make this stuff up. And yeah. all the things that are in there, those are the real parts because going through some of the paperwork as well, too, I found a receipt that my wife had had her genitals pierced just before she took off as well. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe I just go to the court simply and say, okay, there's something wrong here. I don't know what it is, but people who at that time she was 35 years old, got a young child. Generally, you wouldn't pierce your genitals. Generally, you wouldn't take a child 3,000 miles away with no warning and founding a note in a child murder. I mean, isn't there something in here in a pattern that you think would be pretty obvious to the courts? And the answer in short is no, it's not. That was not enough. Now, I could get the child back into the state, which I did. I go into the first court appearance and my attorney said, you know, okay, the child will be over about 530 or so. That's great. You know, end of the problem. Nope, that was the beginning because the judge also said, Kyle goes back to mom. I go, what? I mean, I can get her back Why? into the state, but she just goes back. Yes, apparently the Supreme Court has ruled what they call the tender years doctrine. So generally a mother would be favored. But in my case, as I try to explain to the courts and everybody else, but wait a minute, I was a primary caregiver when she was a baby. How is it at five that the tender years doctrine applies? In fact, the Supreme Court ruled against it. And I've already done that. If I can take care of a two-month-old child, I certainly can take care of a five-year-old. But that's what the judge ruled. So there we begin. Three and a half years of trying to get the child back. Now, some of the interesting things that happened during that time also Since I stayed in the marital home, I never left, never cheated, never did anything like that. The neighbors were involved. So my wife would literally, if child could come home for a short amount of time, child would go into the car, get into the car. They would drive three doors down. Child would get out of the car and go to the neighbor's house. So as a result, I would say, there's a line in the novel. I said, my child is right down the street, 3000 miles away. Yeah, there's nothing I could do. Wow. That neighbor had said, you know, and I believe her, it's definitely the case. If I come near that house, they're calling the police, I'm going to jail. So I could see my child and she was right down the street, but I couldn't always have her. And why my wife would drop her off and then take off and where she was going, I have no idea. So all of that to me said, there's something wrong here with this process and there's something wrong with this system. And even going through the psychological evaluations, which we did, I paid for them twice. Uh, They didn't work either. In fact, if you see the cover of the novel, Burning America, it's a very interesting illustration for so many reasons, because we had a five-year-old who was asked by the psychiatrist, the court psychiatrist, and I was not there, was not present. She's small. She can't really talk and articulate what she does, wants, and what she doesn't want because she's small. So he asked her to draw a picture. She draws a picture. Where do you feel loved? Draw a picture of your family. What does she draw? She draws a picture of me 
holding her as a baby. And it's very clear from the illustration. I put it on the cover of the novel because the character has a beard. I have a beard. Uh I'm holding her. Here's the interesting thing about the court psychiatrist. That picture actually ruled against me. He looked at it and he said, he looked at it and his conclusion, it's in black and white. I've got the report. And he said, the child is, the father is too close to the child. What do you mean I'm too close to the child? You asked the child and she just honestly answered where she felt most comfortable and where she felt most loved. And that's indicative of the fact that I did take care of her as a baby because she, in that illustration, is a baby. I'm holding her in my arms. Uh What I was saying in terms of the process that it really made no sense. It's crazy. Couldn't have made this stuff up in a million years because you would think that in what everyone will tell you in the best interest of the child, the judges, the psychiatrists, the neighbors, the attorneys, they would all be working for the best interest of the child. And I put it in the novel, I put it as a question mark because no, they don't. They really don't have the best interest of the child at stake. They have their own interests. Psychiatrists are making money. Attorneys are making money. Judges are making money. Everybody's benefiting off of these very difficult situations that parents are in. So I was alienated from my own child. And I tried to point out, I'm the rock here. I'm the stable one. I didn't leave. Mm -hmm. I didn't take the child anywhere. I would never take the child away from her mother. I would have her anytime. She wants her. I would never have done that. The courts didn't see it that way and took a long time to try to get something and get progress. Each and every time somebody would evaluate you, they'd say, you know, okay, you get another hour. Well, you know, I want to be a father. I want to be a parent. I mean, just giving me an have hour. Her 50% of the time. If at I, least. Yes. At least. I mean, that seems more fair. <laughs> if and, there's no harm, you know, there's no harm, there's no abuse, there's no uh, reason for you to not have her. And it, it's cruel. I mean, it's cruel to a child. I'll give you an example. Someone asked me, in the novel, I wrote about it. My daughter, like most kids who are small, had a security blanket. And most children, they treasure it and they need it. So I'm thinking, here's this poor kid who's going through a very difficult time and being shuttled around from all over the country and from place to place. And she had what we call the big Afghan. That was our security blanket. So the first time she gets home, mom doesn't have the her big Afghan. It's cool. Why didn't you have, where's your big Afghan? Where's I mean, her I, blanket? she, Yes, she slept with that. I mean, it was one of those things. We had a small piece that she could hold and, you know, finger it because it gave her comfort. Well, mom didn't give it to me. Call my attorney. I said, you know, why would you deny the child to have the big Afghan, the security blanket? He said, okay, well, I'll talk to the other attorney. They talk it over and they say, okay, well, we'll just split it in two. I go, no, 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 no. It's is her blanket. It There's stays no, with her. It stays with her no matter wherever what. she goes. Precisely. There's no cutting. There's no snipping. You know, it's her blanket. She needs to have that every single moment, no matter where she is, day or night. Well, anyway, that cost me $600 to get that. It's probably a $2 item. It cost me 600 bucks to make sure that they didn't cut it up and that it was required to be with her at all times. It's just, uh, I just don't feel as though the process that people say you're going through is a, a system that emphasizes the child and the child's needs. And, you know, it reminds me of the, the biblical story, you know, where there are two mothers who are claiming to have the baby. So Solomon comes oh, out and he says, I was just thinking about that when you said split the blanket, yeah, split the baby. So the mother, the true mother said, no, absolutely not. Absolutely because not. Because I'm the protecting one, the baby. 
Absolutely. That she knew the paramount and that was the idea. And so she gets the child that reveals who truly is looking out for the child because there's no uh-huh. splitting. There's no breaking up. Right. It means that the person who is looking out and sacrificing themselves to think of what would the child need and require at that time. So, yeah, it was expensive, right. but she got her blanket. So, I mean, OK, I'm happy. So how long did this go on? This was a, a very unpleasant time for three and a half years. And along that time, you know, you can share joint legal custody, which means that making major decisions should be a part of both parents. But I found another instance where child was getting off the bus and the neighbor who was my wife was dropping the child off with. They were out there with this was the 90s. So it was the old style, old technology. One of those big handheld cameras. They expected me to go crazy or go wild or whatever. But that's how I found out that my wife had actually taken her and put her in another school. So I should have had a part of that decision because having joint legal custody. But that's how I found out. And we had her in a private parochial school. So the environment is completely different. And my Uh wife had put her into public school. So no, that's not good enough. I mean, the the whole idea was she didn't want to pay for it. It's like, okay, well, then I'll pay for that too, because that is in the best interest of the child. If you don't want to pay for, just communicate with me. Don't disrupt her. Don't Mm. not tell me and don't let me find out by finding out she's getting off the bus because it's a different bus. It's the public school bus as opposed to the private parochial school. But that's how I found out. So you had you had no communication um, with your ex-wife. It was very difficult. Yes, she was not cooperating and not communicating. And yeah, I would find out about these things. I found out when our daughter had injuries, for example, I found out because I got bills and I said, where is this from? How did this happen? So one time I had an elderly neighbor whose backyard was adjacent to ours and the wife supposedly was on vacation, said, OK, for two weeks, you're not going to have any access to your daughter because wife is taking her on vacation. So, OK. And I saw an ambulance at one time. And, oh, that's too bad because these were elderly people. Unfortunately, they had to go to the hospital. Uh-huh. No, nope. turns out my wife was vacationing at this neighbor's house whose backyard was adjacent to mine. And I got a bill. There was a breathing instant instance and it was our daughter. She had some sort of breathing problem. She was taken to the emergency room. So no call, didn't know about it. I was thinking to myself, a kid could have died. You know, don't you think you should communicate something like that to me? Yeah. Anyway, I found out was because I got the bill for them from the emergency room. There was a breathing incident. So when things like that happen, and there were incidents like that, uh, burning of the fingers, she had finger in her eye. I mean, there were things like that, that I would say, you know, Maybe there's something wrong here. You know, why is the child having injuries? Wouldn't you have somebody intervene? Medical professionals, they didn't intervene. Counselors who were talking to her, they didn't intervene. Like no one. So what I always say, this to me is the, what I'd say, it's the the village custody court. You know, there's a village here. And you hear the expression, it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to have parental alienation also. And that's what I found that was the problem here that everybody within the village saw things as one way and that way was not my way or what I thought would be the best for the child because there were two things that I said to me there are two important things for a child who's growing up now she was experiencing these things between the ages of five and eight years old so I think a home and a school are the two most important things for a child of that age stability and stability precisely and that was my word I said 
who's the stable person here? Where's a child going to find the most stability in a chaotic time? There's two things. Well, I remained in the marital home. I never left. I said, well, why can't you return the child to her home? This is where she lives and keep her in the school. So those are the two things I was trying to emphasize to the entire court village system. It's stability. That's the thing that the child needs more than anything. And you're you're the whole time because um, I kept thinking, I kept thinking, did you and your wife have issues before she just took off? Well, one of the things that I had hoped to find through the psychiatrist examination, because yes, I think there was something wrong. When I describe these things that are happening to her and around her, something is wrong. Now, I'm not a professional. I don't know. However, I did know previous to her taking off, she had been seeing therapists from time to time. And Uh they began to reveal some of the things that I didn't know before we were married. The fact that she felt very distant from her mother. Mm-hmm. My wife had been molested when she was in high school, which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Her mother didn't protect her. She said it was it was an incident with her brother-in-law. Wife, the mother had told her basically, just keep quiet. Don't disrupt your sister's family. Don't say anything about your brother-in-law. It's like what a Great. terrible thing to yeah. tell a child. Yeah. So I can't blame. Let's my protect wife. the perpetrator, not protect <clears throat> exactly. the child. Let's protect the child. So she was not protected as a child. And I didn't know about this, but some of the things that she, when she went to psychiatrists and therapists, she would start revealing to me. And I said, yeah, this is a real problem because she had been, we had been walking one time and there was a car coming up behind us as we were walking. And she said, I hope that car just comes up and runs me over. I looked at her and I go, what? You know, why would you say that? <clears throat> you know, that something was very disturbing to her. And I think this long process of talking with therapists began to reveal there were some issues with her and her mother. And she felt very distant from her mother. And so why was her running away from you helping? <laughs> I, I mean, that, that, she, that in some way she felt like she needed to protect her daughter from any man. I don't know. I mean, I wish I had answers for you, but I said going through this process and knowing that some things were being revealed and her behavior, it seemed to me that the psychiatrist should have picked up on this and should have been able to identify it. And then that helped me and help her and help our child. Most importantly, none of this, they were oblivious to it and never said it was a problem. Continually said, Oh, she's doing well. My daughter came home one time. She was probably six or seven. And this is literally what she told me. She said, I really don't think I should see, Adults naked. I go, what are you talking about? She saw mom and another partner having sexual relations. And I said, well, yeah, that's a problem. I go back to my attorney. I go back to the court. And I said, I really don't think that a child should see people having sexual relations. Here's literally what the answer and response was. Oh, your wife is making progress. She's moving on. Really, you should move on as well. Maybe you should think about getting a girlfriend. I go, folks, you just don't understand. Oh, my gosh. You don't understand the problem here. Here's a child. She was saying my child herself, she was about six or seven. And she said, I don't think I should be able to see people naked until maybe I'm 21 or so. She had more sense than the adults I was dealing with. Wow, that's so crazy. I I can't make this stuff up. (laughs) It was not stuff I made up. All they put in the novel because they said, you know, People need to know 
some of the details of things that can and have happened to people because other people have very similar experiences and probably could tell you all the horrible things that have happened that the court system and the custody system that I call it's an industry that does not respond to the needs of children. The child ends up, they have more wisdom than the adults did. That's what I found. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. <laughs> and that, and that they tell the truth. Yeah. She's just telling the truth, like drawing the illustration. You like ask me a child, the the child, draw a picture. What is your family? Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you feel loved? She did, but, but she didn't give the right answer. And that's, I mean, this was, this was something that I was talking to Kendra about yesterday is that, you know, she said that after it's like her former husband has been feeding them stories, you know, and planting seeds of, of, um, negative perspective, you know, against Kendra. And I'm sure at the beginning, the kids were like, I want to see mom. Where's mom? How come I'm not spending time with mom? And I would imagine that your daughter said the same thing. I want to be with dad. Why can't I be with dad? Why can't I, you know? Yeah, there were things, for example, that you find the meaningless of court orders. Court orders mean absolutely nothing because, you know, I'm a little old fashioned. And I think if the judge or the law or the police tell me to do something, I do it because it's an order. Well, those orders mean almost like nothing. So there was a court order. I was supposed to have contact. 6.30 every single day. So as my child got older, she doesn't understand what a phone bill was, but mm-hmm. every single day at 6.30, I would call on the dot and I showed her the phone record and said, did you get these calls? No. Did mom let you talk to me? No. But there they are. Month after month, 6.30 wow. precisely on the dot. You can see it. For That went on for about nine months. And wow. every single night for nine months and I showed her, here's the phone bill. You can see, here's the record. I called. I tried to do everything I can to reach you. And, you know, did the same thing that a lot of parents try. You know, you write things to them, you draw pictures, you know, you send them things. And I said, did you ever get those? No, never saw them. So mom kept all that stuff from her. Wow. And so nobody ever evaluated her, the mom, and said, hmm, these are strange things happening. (laughs) Yes. I can just tell you that I believe these are strange things. I can tell you these things that actually happened. I believe that they were strange. They would be indicative to me if I had heard them as a third party objective person. There's probably something wrong here. And I probably need to probe and understand what the dynamics were. But no one took the time. No one found out. And no one seemed to do. Nobody seemed to care. Oh, I'm sorry. It's it's okay that your six or seven year old is watching mom have sex with another guy that's not her dad. Yeah, that's it. You know, maybe it could just lock the door. You know, they're just simple things that you can do. I mean, this, this just, it's a bizarre situation. And that's why I'm saying you want to tell the story and say the crazy things can happen and telling people too. I was fortunate. I had connected with a parents group through a church and I said, this was really helpful. So weekly you would just go and tell people. And I said, you know, I could see people looking at me as if I'm crazy. There's something wrong with me simply because I'm telling them what's happening, but I'm uh-huh. going, yeah, I'm not making this up, up. You know, it's just that I need to talk to somebody right. and hopefully people who are sane and objective and just listen. So it became an episode episode. So it was episodic. So weekly there would be one thing after another. And that's what I tried to write in the novel because I said, it, it seemed to me from the very beginning, this is like a crazy story. 
but mm-hmm. I'm not crazy. And I you're like, and this system, is my life. This is my life. Yeah. There's nothing I can do. First line of the novel, I said, the first line is no parent prepares for a child to be taken. Yeah. And I go, you know, because we prepare everything for children, you know, the food, their religious upbringing, their school, their family. And we, we plan all of these things. But as I described, here's a situation where I pulled up in the driveway one day and my child's gone. I never prepared for that. I had no idea. Didn't think it could possibly happen, but happened to me and it's happened to other people too. And that's what I'd like to try to stress and say, you know, this is what's happening and it shouldn't be. And maybe there are people who are listening within the custody industry who realize that they could do a better job. Uh huh. So how, how do you help other parents uh, get through this? Well, I think one of the things that we do in the aftermath that Kendra and I do is we say, I mean, first of all, you, you think you're entirely alone and definitely that's the case. You feel like there's nobody in the world who can understand gonna, and appreciate. And that's going to advocate for you because yes. nobody was advocating for you back then. Yes, absolutely. So you feel totally isolated. You feel uh-huh. totally alone. And people that you go to, even with the best of intentions, your family, your friends and other people, after a while, you start realizing that they can't relate to you anymore because that's all you talk about because you're mm-hmm. obsessed with this and it disturbs mm-hmm. you on such a deep level. And all that's all you talk about. And so they kind of tune you out after a while because they're looking for a solution or looking for a happy ending. Well, I'm looking for a happy ending, too. But there course. is no happy ending. And this stuff goes on, you know, it keeps going on week after week, month after month, year after year. And it's very difficult for people to understand it. So what we are trying to do with the aftermath, first of all, just say, look, you are not alone. Kendra experienced something very similar and horrible. I did. And you are not alone. And you can survive and you can get through it. And what we were trying to do is to just throw that lifeline. We will listen. And we have experts on all the time, like yourself, who come on and tell us, how do you deal with divorce? How do you deal with parental alienation? How do you heal? And how do you get through these very difficult times? And I think that's what we're trying to offer people, experts and others who understand, who have been there and have experienced these horrible things and these traumas and then been able to come out of it on the other side. How did you deal with your own sense of sanity during the time when you were not able to see her? It's very difficult because you are taking what is your ordinary world, an ordinary world where here's my child. We're in our home. I would dress her. I would feed her, get her to school, do all those things. That's the ordinary world. And then suddenly you're not in that ordinary world anymore. And Mm -hmm. that world is completely shattered and that world is completely gone. So what I say for a lot of ways, I was that blathering idiot because I have no idea what's going on. This was such a a shock out of the blue. So since I was a academic and I have an academic background, I would generally be able to find some sort of peace with reading, but I'd say my brain was mush. It was very difficult to read, very difficult to concentrate because you're so obsessed with the kinds of things, having that separation from your child or children. So there are things that are like that, but I would highly encourage people to do the basics. And this is what your mama told you when you were small and mama was right. Make sure you're (laughs) eating right. Make sure you're sleeping right. 
Make sure you're exercising. Do all the basics that you know lead to good health and happiness because that's what cuts down on because it's more difficult for you to sleep, more difficult for you to eat. You're probably going to sit around more. So you have to go back to some really basic things. Try to get enough sleep, get the exercise, eat correctly, Mm -hmm. take care of yourself. Because what you're always thinking and the hope is, of course, your child or children are coming back. Well, if you remain that blathering idiot the whole time, you're in no condition to help them out. You need to keep yourself healthy and you keep yourself well. It's the whole idea, you know, when you're on the plane and, you know, there's emergency and the things come down, you're right. You take it. (laughs) You have to take care of the child first. And this is, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself. You can't take care of the child, excuse me. So that's what you have to remind yourself. Look out for number one. And it's very difficult for you to do that because you're a caregiver and you're a sacrificer and you're thinking of putting your child first. But no, you have to make sure that you're healthy and well so that when they do return, because they are going to come back, you're going to be in a position to be able to help them. So so how did you get to the other side? How did you end up um, reuniting with your daughter? Because... There's a happy ending to your story. Yes, but it's a tragic. And a strange, ending. tragic, yeah. Yes. So I'm saying, you know, when I read the blurb, if you read the blurb on the novel, I said, you know, there's a tragedy here. There, and there's a tragic story to hear. My attorney and wife's attorney got an emergency call because my wife had had some health or mental issues and exactly what and what combination, I don't know. But she mm-hmm. was not physically well. So it could have had something to do with that. But in any case, the attorneys were called to an emergency meeting. They had to meet the judge. And the judge says, you know, had something that wasn't there. But oddly enough, the neighbor that I was describing earlier, I get a call from her. Now, she had already warned me, don't come to my house. Don't call me. But I get a call from the neighbor. And she said, the judge awarded me custody. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. So I just hung up the phone immediately. Get not on the, the dad, phone. not the grandparent, not the aunt or no uncle. One. No family, no one. But this neighbor had been very close contact with my wife the entire time for three and a half years with no examination, no psychological evaluation, no looking at her finances. Could she support the child? None of that. And I said, well, wait a minute. I'm the parent. I went through all of this, this ordeal yeah. and had to pay for it. And you're going to tell me that the court awarded the neighbor custody? said, yes, absolutely. But here's the tragedy. I think that there is a, a higher being and there is a higher judge because literally what happened the very next day, my wife passed away. That's how I got the child back. It was not to the courts, not to the attorney, not through the psychiatrist, not through medical professionals. No one. I got the child back because my wife passed away. That is so freaky. That is so bizarre. It was bizarre to me because, uh, yeah, surprise. And the idea was that she had a terminal illness and the details are that I don't actually know. I still know to this day. Uh-huh. I went to the hospital. The hospital would give me absolutely no information whatsoever. Wouldn't reveal who she was because my child could hear me. I had her sitting in a corner away from us. And she said, but this was mom's name in the hospital. I guess she changed your name to hide her identity. And the hospital would release no information. The only way that I could see was six weeks later when I could go just like any other member of the public and go to the county records, records. and get a record that yes, this is a person who was deceased. And that's what I found six weeks later. Wow. I, I wonder, uh, I wonder if she knew about that when she left. 
And maybe that's why she left. I no mean, idea. That, that doesn't matter. But um, so because she died, then she, so then your daughter automatically goes to the dad? Well, n- not that I know of. It just in my <laughs> case, um, I got a call from the mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law said that my wife had passed away. And we'll be over in about a half an hour and we're returning our child. So I said, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. But yeah, about a half an hour later, they pulled up and they started unloading a bunch of things. I went out and got my daughter, just walked back into the house, locked the door, waited till they left. And I said, all that stuff, we'll get that stuff later. Because all I could, like, I can't believe that I could actually get her home. But I got her in the door, locked the door, waited till the people drove off. And when my wife's family drove off. Then I went out and got all, all of her stuff. But yeah, I don't know what, what would was, have happened if they kept her. What was that like reuniting with your daughter? Well, it was like seamless. That's the thing I had been trying to tell the entire court process. You know, all you have to do is this kid comes home, she's going to be home. And it was seamless. We had no disruptions. We had complete peace. We We got along great. So it was, you know, people would say that they struggle as a single parent, which I get, I understand, but as a full-time single parent, it was actually a whole lot easier than it was going through the previous three and a half years. It was just, mm-hmm. well, okay, she's home now. Let's just have a normal life like we did and just just forget the fact that I hadn't seen you essentially for three years or so. Uh-huh. so let's go on. Let's move on. <clears throat> and so how how did all of that impact your daughter I'm just thinking, especially like through the teenage years. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure can. Good question. And now here's the interesting thing. I said, you know, I'm going to know that this has had to have some type of psychological mental impact and it could be very negative. Emotional. Yeah. Emotional and negative. So my entire goal was, and my prayer from that day on is, I'm going to keep this kid sane until she's 18 years old because that's when I'm totally responsible for her. So yes, you're always going to be a parent, but I'm totally responsible until she's an adult. She was 18. Mm -hmm. So turns out, uh, you know, again, it's almost like I'm bragging, but turns out by the time she was 18, she was class valedictorian. She went to an Ivy League college and some would say the most prestigious of all the Ivy League colleges. She went on to earn a master's degree in England. So I said, you know, pretty good job, you know? And I said, this is kind of what I was trying to tell everybody. Just return this child home, let her have a normal upbringing. I can do this. And I think that was the vindication on what I was trying to tell them that if you had just done what I had asked her to do, asked you to do, she would not have had that difficult three-year period in her young life, but that she could turn out to be the young and vibrant and intelligent person that she was destined to be. Does she have um, does she have many memories of her mom? The the only thing I can say is that, you know, we tried to kind of debrief her as I didn't want to press her for information because uh-huh. there were things that I don't know happened and I suspect might have happened to her. And I didn't press and I have not pressed her. But she said when asking about what she remembers, some of the things she would tell me just frankly that I don't remember. I think she blocked out certain things and I think she blocked out bad memories or bad things that happened to her. But in terms of kind of debriefing and just saying, okay, well, you know, always think positively. I never said anything bad about her mother. I never bad mouth her. I just said, you know, let bygones be bygones and let her develop her own ideas and her understanding of what had happened. But some things she just doesn't remember. 
and just kind of like pushed it back out of her out of her memory and and I kind of explained my perspective but yeah kind of had a normal time and a normal life from the time that she was eight years old until she went off to college at 18. Wow and how old is she now? She's 29. Wow and she's thriving. Yeah and that's it I say um you know, when you want a child to grow up, you say you want a child who is independent and thoughtful and what have you. It's like, well, okay, now you created a monster. Now she's independent. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I kind of like the fact that when she was little, when I got older, you know, but parents relate. Parents yeah, understand this. Yeah. You always kind of see them as that little kid and, you know, what have you. But they, they, they grow up and they have their own lives. So how, how did you, um, how did you get through? How did you get through all of it? Because I, I mean, even the, the difficult time when you, when you couldn't see her, when your neighbor was taking her, when your wife was hiding her from you. And then I'm, I'm just thinking like, okay, you said you take care of yourself, just the basics, right? But, but creating that sense of, why is this happening to me? Because I'm sure you are asking that all the time. Like, why is this happening? I don't understand what's going on. How am I going to get through this? Um, how do you, how do you help people with that? Because I, when you were talking, I thought, I thought about forgiveness. That's what I was thinking about forgiveness, because you could have a lot of anger and resentment towards your former wife. And so I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of parents who are going through this, who have experienced this, there are all these mixture of emotions that go on through them. Yeah. And I think if anything, there's advantage. My academic background is historian of religion. So I have, you know, it's a, there's a religious background to it. So I'm a faithful religious person anyway, but this is what has really helped me. And I'd hope that people would think about their spiritual nature and realize that there is a higher power. And so a lot of the questions I had, some questions I got answers to and some questions I didn't have answers to. So I said, well, it's a lot like life. But in terms of judging my wife or under, not understanding what she's done, I don't understand. So I tried not to understand that and didn't worry about it. The things I could understand, you know, it's the famous prayer that says, you know, God will help me to understand the things and change the things I can, the courage to know the difference. And yeah, you just, you know, both some things you understand and some things a complete mystery to you. But to hold on to anger and to hold on to things, you know, that damages you more than the other person. So it was quickly easy to just say, you know, I'm just going to let all that go. And maybe someday I'll get an answers to it. But right now I don't. So whatever she was dealing with, whether it was physical or mental, I go, okay, I'm just going to say it was physical or mental. There were some things that were out of her control potentially too. So there's no need to have any sort of anger and continue to hang on to it. It's not going to be healthy. It, it would hurt me more than anybody else. And now that she's gone, doesn't hurt her at all. So, you know, don't cling to it, move on. And I think when you come back to some of the basics that who makes me, me, well, I'm a voracious reader and I write a lot. I wrote the novel. It was catharsis. And we will ask, I never yeah. thought potentially I was going to publish it. My whole idea was I need to get this out. I right. need to get this thing out of me. Right. So what I would say to other people is, yes, something physical or something expressive. And Creative. You know, we've talked, 
we've created, we've talked about dance. And I said, I did my dissertation on dance. Yes. So anything that gets it out. So that could be movement. That could be dance. That could be writing. That could be exercise. Um, Some people say yoga. Yes. But something that gets it out of you and out into the world, that's the best thing that you can do to help yourself and to get past a very difficult time and a traumatic time. And then, of course, there's other things. You look for a higher power. I did. I'm a religious person. Other people, I hope they would find some sort of higher power that would help them and guide them. And that's what I think you got to look for. There are forces in the universe that are more big and more powerful than I am. I recognize them. I know that. And so I go, well, I don't have the answers, but maybe someday I will. Well, and I think... I think that's actually, um, I think most people are challenged with that because they want answers. They want answers. Why? <laughs> why did she do what she did? What was she going through? Uh, you know, why did she prevent me from having a relationship with my daughter? But you can't understand. You, you yeah. don't. You don't get the answers to many of your questions. And mm-hmm. I think, I think a lot of times when people talk about forgiveness, it's like, well, I want the, that person to take responsibility for what they did. And they never do. Right. They never do. And so to expect that makes you go crazy. Yes. <laughs> you and know, it makes, it makes you feel unrest. It makes you, uh, carry that energy of, of fear or, uh, anger or resentment or, um, you know, all of, all of these lower vibration energies. And it's like, how is that helping you heal? Mm-hmm. How is that helping you propel and move forward in your life? Or is it keeping you stuck to the past? Right. And I said, there's a, you got to keep moving. So I, that's simple. I said, there's a really simple thing about life. You know, I've noticed something about dead people. They're not moving. I've noticed something about living people. They're moving. So guess what I do? I move. I move all the time. And that means I walk, I exercise, I hike, I dance. I'm moving all the time because that's what I think you need to do. The worst thing you can do is to sort of languish and to give up and moving and some sort of way of creative expression, I think, is really helpful and really healing. So people might find something like that if you haven't and be open to new experiences too. It's another thing I've heard people, you know, you're, you're a human being and there's a lot of things in life. So when somebody tells you, let's do this, or let's try that. Yeah, try it, do it, <clears throat> excuse me, because it's something which it shows your humanity and it brings out your humanity after a traumatic experience. How do you, how do you think uh, people forgive? And let go. I'm, I'm not sure if they do, but I highly recommend it. <laughs> Excuse me. This is why I say in religious ex- expressions in some religions, in the Roman Catholic system, that's why you have the, you go to a confessional, you know, confess. I'm saying, you know, I can't, I'm holding on to this. Can you help me? And learn how to forgive and learn how to move on because you're only damaging yourself. That's the thing. Anger eats away at you. And it doesn't necessarily impact the other person because they have their own head and they have their own set of emotions and they have their own struggles that they're going through. And as human beings, we can only see the world as we see it. Right. So I can empathize and I certainly try to do and try to understand other people, but they have their own set of what they have gone through in their bulk of their experiences and how they view life. And 
I can't make other people do things. I'd say in a relationship, as I say, there's, I got one rule in a relationship and that one rule is no coercion, no force. So Mm. do what you want to do. If you want to do something, say yes. If you don't want to do something, say no. I mean, because no force, no coercion, we are free as human beings. I think that's what our God-given ability is in contrast to animals and lower forms of life. We get to choose things. Mm -hmm. And so decide you have that freedom and you can choose. And so in a relationship, I think the same rule applies. Don't try to force people to do anything. Don't try to emotionally damage them. Mm -hmm. Don't try to force anything on them. And I always say there's a biblical phrase about let your yeses be yeses and your noes be noes. That seems simple. That's it. That's the key. It's not simple for a lot of people. A lot of people uh, say yes when they want to say no or say no when they want to say yes. Mm-hmm. Just be clear. Know yourself, you know, to thy own self be true, as the bard said. Know yeah. who you are. Know what you want. Figure yourself out. And let other people be themselves and let them live their lives from their perspective, but try to understand them. That's where the empathy comes in. So I'm a big believer in just try to empathize with people. I may not, may not be me, but I can understand if I listen to them attentively and I listen to what they're going through, then I can empathize with them. And that brings out our humanity. It makes us better people, makes us more kind, makes us more loving. And that's why I say is the great thing about a relationship. You find out as someone has described, not looking for the person that you want to find, but to become the person you want to be. And right. when you find that under the person, that's where the match is. They make you a better person. Are you, a, are you kinder? Are you more loving? Are you more forgiving? And if that person does that, you got a great relationship. Yeah. Do you, have you had another relationship since your marriage? I think um, not completely serious. I mean, you know, I have dated and I've had relationships and have a great relationship with friends and family, of course, also, but I didn't remarry and I've never lived with someone. So I haven't had, say, maybe that intimate type of experience that people would have over a longer term. So Mm -hmm. single and free. (laughs) (laughs) What have you learned about yourself? I think probably the, the fact that this is probably the the worst and most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me. And I think, you know, there are people that I was really in love with and my father who passed away. So, I mean, I have experienced things that are very difficult, but this is probably the most difficult thing that I ever have. And so I'm reminded of Nietzsche, you know, it's the famous phrase that which does not kill me helps me grow. Absolutely. Mm. Still alive, still breathing. And I didn't die. So if I could survive this, then I probably can survive everything. And I think it's helpful because when things happen, because I've had a lot of bad things happen, when people talk to me, they say, well, aren't you upset? You know, no, not really. I mean, because it doesn't, it pales in comparison pales to in what comparison has happened. to losing my daughter for three years. Yes. I mean, when it, that happens, like, well, you know, I survived. And so these other things are bad. Yeah. But, you know, figure out a plan, get yourself out of it and move on. Just keep moving. And, you know, it's the old expression there is if you're walking through hell, keep walking. Absolutely. Just keep going. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I had a situation a couple of days ago that it was really minor, but I sort of flipped out about it. <laughs> and I was like, why am I flipping out about this? Um, and then talking to Kendra yesterday, I was like, I have my kids. I have my kids and it's the holiday. And, you know, I thought this must be really 
you know, she must feel really lonely uh, not having her kids with her. And I'm sure you experienced that for those three years. And you're so blessed to have gotten her back when you did and to have, you know, to have her whole, her whole rest of her childhood with you. The the holidays are are very difficult. So I understand. I mean, it's like one of the worst and lowest points of this entire three and a half year period was my parents are in Arizona and we were outside Philadelphia. And the one time my mom came into town and I said, that was just, it was so sad. It was during the holidays. And I said, you know, what's wrong here? I mean, mom has come 3000 miles away to see her granddaughter and you know, where's the granddaughter? Well, she's not here. So it was a very difficult and low period. And, you know, those are the very difficult times because they're very emotional anyway, but they just are exacerbated by the fact that you feel distant or you don't have those loving and kind relationships around you. So difficult times are holidays. So reach out to other people, you know, your friends, other people in your family, but yes, get around there and get, get yourself that human side of you tap into it. Yeah. Get, um, I mean, I always think it's like you have to have compassion for yourself wherever you are and whatever emotional state you're in. Uh, And I feel like that's the greatest, that's one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself is to say, you know what, I know I'm struggling right now, but I have compassion for myself and, and, and hang on to some sense of hope uh, that there's hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope on the other side of whatever you're struggling with. Um, and that somehow, like you and Kendra are turning your pain into your purpose, you know, to try and help other people who are experiencing similar heartache and heartbreak. Um, but that you can provide some sense of solace for them, some sense of hope, some sense of, uh, not not necessarily understanding, but acceptance and using it as a way to help share love and service to other people. Yeah. Take care of yourself. You know, say, look out for number one. And, you know, if you're a parent and you're used to sacrificing as parents are, you do have to come back to say, yeah, but you've got to keep yourself healthy and you've got to look out Mm -hmm. for number one. Don't be afraid to say, you know, if I need to do something, then do it. If uh, you need to express yourself, then express it. If you need to be angry for a bit, be angry. You know, it's part of finding out who and what you are. And in my case, it's pretty clear. I mean, there are two things that have always kept me through. I mean, I look for a higher power as God for me, but I mean, I'm, I read a lot, I write a lot and I love music. So, I mean, those are the things that make my living as most human as possible. So I think right. you need to find those things that work for you and tap into those because those are sustaining kinds of things. Those are things that keep you healthy and keep you alive and keep you as understanding that you are a human being and worthy of dignity and respect because all people are. Well, and keep you, not just keep you alive, but keep you with a sense of thriving as opposed to just surviving, right? That you find some purpose and meaning in your life, however that is. Yeah. Yeah. So the the last question I asked sure. Nick is is how do you define real love? Because that's what we're talking about here. This yes, whole it, this whole process of you or you. It's, 
it's sacrificial. And that's what I said. It, it's finding out that you give for other people and give for another person. And hopefully in an intimate relationship, that's what you're doing. If you can make their needs and their concerns as much of your own or put them first, you know, it reminds me of the biblical phrase that no greater love the man have than lay down his life for another. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you can lay down your life and give up whatever you need or you want for that other person. I think that's what real love is. And I would always say my, my whole thing is that whole notion of no force, no coercion. And if a person understands who and what they are and that's what they want, accept that because you never want to be in a position where you're putting emotional weight on another person or that you feel like you're forcing them to do something that they should just be able to be free. And by like I mean, guilt tripping somebody, you mean? Yeah, don't do that. If, and there's a, again, I think it was in the sixties or somewhere in the sixties or seventies, you know, if you love something, then let it free, let it, free. Let, it let it go. And it's exactly, you know, because if you cling, then that's not love. There's something that's more than that. And it's completely giving yourself to another person and let them go. And if they return, they return. And if they don't, they don't. But yes, they should have that freedom to be able to choose themselves. Mm. So in love, there's freedom. Absolutely. No as, well as, as well as connection. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so, um, I'm really glad for you. I mean, at the, at the end of Kendra's and my conversation, I just felt so badly for her. I, you know, I just, my heart breaks for her because I know that she's still struggling, but there's hope on the other side. And I mean, sh- I'm, I'm so grateful that she's turning her, passion, you know, her, her pain into her purpose. Um, just like you have turned your pain into your purpose. And so it's a beautiful gift that you are sharing and giving to the world, uh, to give other parents in similar situations, hope for the other side to be reunited with your child. Yeah, they're coming back. You just don't know when, but you have to think <laughs> that and don't give up hope. They're coming. Don't give up hope and, and know that the truth will prevail that somehow, you know, goodness wins over evil. Yes. Uh, again, I've got a little a biblical thing. Look at the end of the book. Turn it over. You know, you <laughs> want to see what happens? Look at the book of Revelation. Yeah. A good wins in the end. Doesn't seem like it sometimes, but yeah, it's going to come out and yeah. it's going to come out good. Yeah. And, and I, and I said to Kendra, you know, like because of her situation, it really made me thankful that I have my kids you know, that sense of appreciation and gratitude for the blessings that I do have, like your family that was supportive of you. And, you know, you had friends trying to help you, um, your church community, you know, people that you could go to and share your story with people that were willing to, to listen to you and, and give you support and encouragement because we all need that. Yeah. They're, they're there. Look, reach out, look for people. And yeah. you find out you're not quite so alone. That yeah. uh, was what I found telling a story. And this is what got me going, actually, to, to publish a novel, as I finally did. I sat on it for a long time. But, you know, long story short, same exact thing happened to literally my best friend. And he had an, wow. just exactly the same thing happened. He was in the West Coast and his wife took off with their child, a baby, to the East Coast. 3000 miles away. And wow. here I am, I'm sitting on this text basically. And I said, you know, I got to find a publisher. I got to get this out. And if this stuff is still happening, because this is more recent, 
I said, that was the thing that put me over the edge. And I said, you know, I got to get this story out. I'm trying to help people and say, it is happening. It's very wrong. It shouldn't be happening, but you need to be aware of this as an issue. And so when you're speaking of Kendra, this is what I, I called her. I kind of coined the phrase. I called her legislative tiger because I said, you know, <laughs> she's very active in yeah. legislation. And yes, we've really become a part in a great team to say, you know, we're going to look at legislation in different states and to see what we can do to, first of all, bring awareness. And number two, to see if we can get a better system in place to yes. help parents and to help children get through a difficult time. Well, and to protect. Uh, to protect the innocent. That's what I said, because the kids are these pawns, you know, that the parents use against the other parent, which is not cool. Uh, the phrase is always comes to mind, you know, that, that people will say all the time, the children are our future. And I go, okay, that's true. But if the children are our future, we better do a better job because this is their childhood and yeah. this is what they're going to remember. And this is what they're going to have to deal with and live with their entire lives. So yep. we have to do every single thing that we can to bring them along as healthily as possible because they are our future. And we're trying to turn the next generation over to the best things that we have and not the bad things that are in society and our in our culture. Yeah. And not just physically take care of them it's like mentally and psychologically emotionally take care of them and not use them as <laughs> as pawns to deal to, to deal or not deal with our own emotional stuff it's mm -hmm. like that's why i feel like it's so important that we take care of ourselves you know not self-care is not selfish yes. <laughs> self-care is healing and when yeah. you heal yourself, when you care for yourself, then I feel like you give your children permission to do the same as they become adults. Yep. There's nothing I can do for another person if I'm deficient. But yes, I do. A lot of people do think that. And I do sometimes I feel guilty, like because I'm enjoying myself or being happy. Like, well, no, wait a minute. I have a right to be happy. I have a right <laughs> to be happy, just like yes. you have a right to be happy, just yes. like we all have a right to uh, be free and to make our own choices and to do the things that, you know, we think are good for us. It's like, doesn't matter really what anybody else thinks. It matters. Mm -hmm. What do I think? Yep. Who do I, who do I want to be? How do I want to live my life? What kind of mm -hmm. impact do I want to have? We often think that is being selfish, but yeah, you're not being selfish. You're just being healthy and, and healthy is a, is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you are a beautiful testimony of, um, of healing through this heartache. Uh, so I really appreciate your story and I appreciate you being here. And I'm so happy you have your daughter. Yeah, it's uh, there is hope. That's it. That, you, I think you nail it. Just don't give up. Yeah, don't give up. And I'm sure uh, as your daughter, you know, gets older, married, has kids, um, that'll be a beautiful legacy that you're leaving to to them. So you always pass it on to the next generation, yeah. try to get them healthy. Yeah, exactly. So how did people get in touch with you, Mick? Well, I talked about the novel, so feel free. That'd be like a good story. Burning America and the best interests of the children. It's got a question mark. It's available on Amazon. I do have a site as well, too, but I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I'm all over the Internet. I have a, a phrase. It's Dr. Digital. That's what I'm known by and for. But I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm not hard to find. I got podcasts, both on the aftermath. I have my own, the Doctor of Digital podcast. So yeah, 
I'm pretty easy to find. I'm not able to hide from anybody. If you want to reach out and if I can help, by all means. So I coach and, you know, like to help people with if they've got a story, I can help them, you know, use their story to help and benefit other people as well, too. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, And for me, I'm Dawn Richard. You can find me on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, Facebook, all over the Internet, too. Uh, either Don Richard or the Awakening with Don, uh, and and I help people overcome heartbreak in relationships. So that's my gig. <laughs> uh, and for the Wake Up to Real Love podcast, uh, I'm I hope that this has helped inspire all of you, whether or not you've experienced parental alienation. But I'm guessing that we all experience alienation in some way in relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to so to continue to take care of yourself, continue to nourish and nurture yourself. Um, it's not selfish, it's self-care so that you can be a good parent, a good, uh, you know, child who can support your aging parents or your, your growing kids. Uh, because all we need is love. <laughs> all we need is love, but we all want love and, and peace and harmony and connection mm-hmm. and freedom and freedom. So thank you for, for listening, listeners. Um, subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast show. Uh, give five-star reviews. Share with people who you find uh, would, would benefit from these messages of hope and inspiration. And again, thank you, Mick, for being here. I really appreciate you. Thanks, Don. You're a beautiful soul. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Thanks, listeners. Every day, wake up to more and more real love. Take care. Subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast. Leave five-star reviews. And, of course, share with your friends. You can find Dawn on various social media platforms at Dawn Richard or at The Awakening with Dawn.